Hello readers, my name is Jason Jefferies and this is Bookin' brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. Earlier this month, I had the pleasure of interviewing New York Times bestselling author John Grisham for a virtual event in our store as he was promoting his latest novel, A Time for Mercy, which is published by our friends at Doubleday. I will now present to you interview in full. All right. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. Our guest today is New York Times bestselling author John Grisham. He's the author of classics like A Time to Kill, The Firm, The Pelican Brief, The Client, The Chamber, The Rainmaker, Camino Wins, and many, many more. Not only is he a legendary author and a fantastic writer, but he is also a huge supporter of independent bookstores. And we here at Quail Ridge Books cannot thank him enough for that. His latest novel is A Time for Mercy, published by our friends at Doubleday. John, welcome. Hey, Jason. Good to see you again. Yeah, good to see you too, John. It's an honor to have you here. And 1984 was a big year for both you and Quail Ridge Books. It's the year that Quail Ridge Books opened, and it is also the year that you began writing A Time to Kill, which was published in 1989. A Time to Kill, of course, introduces us to young Mississippi lawyer Jake Brigance. Jake comes to represent Carl Lee Haley in this book, and Carl Lee is an African-American gentleman who shot two men, two white men, who raped his, Carl Lee's daughter. We see Jake again in your wonderful novel, Sycamore Row, and now in A Time for Mercy, which, folks, it's a wonderful book. If you haven't read it yet, I can't wait for you to read it so we can talk about it in our store. John, what keeps drawing you back around to this town, this time period, and the young lawyer, Jake Brigance? Well, it's my favorite uh, setting for fiction. It's, um, it's home. It's where I'm from. It's what I know. It's the, uh, it's the people, the, the society, the culture, the history, the town, the customs, the um, language, the families, the conflict, the food, music. It's, you know, it's where I am from. And so it's easier to write stories from Ford County. And, uh, you know, when Jake became a popular fixture, fixture, fixture in American fiction, a fixture in fiction uh, in the mid 1990s. Uh, the book was huge in the mid 1990s. Uh, the movie was just as big, and Matthew McConaughey did, did such a great job bringing Jake to life on film. You know, Jake became even more popular. We were we were sort of pleasantly surprised in 2013 when Sycamore Row came out. We, you know, I knew Jake was. Uh, we'd sold a zillion copies of it by then. I knew J- Jake was popular, but we were really surprised at the uh, reception of Sycamore Row and the people who wanted more of Jake. And it had been 24 years since the time to kill. And I remember thinking, okay, I'm not going to wait 24 more years to bring Jake back. Uh, and I began thinking then, thinking then of, a, you know, what would a good story be? What would another courtroom drama, another unpopular case in Clanton and, and, you know, with Jake in the middle of it. And so a few years ago, I heard a lawyer uh, talk about this very difficult case he had. He was defending a 16-year-old kid who had pulled the trigger and killed somebody. And the kid was uh, had had a terrible life, and he was abused and traumatized. And um, anyway, it was a very compelling story. I'm not sure how it ended. I just recall bits and pieces of it, and and so that kind of hung around for a while. 
And finally, I, I pieced together this idea of, of that's Jake's next client in a fictionalized setting. And that's, that's why I go back and, you know, I'm, I'm already thinking about the next one. It won't be anytime soon. Uh, as a small town lawyer in, in Mississippi, you know, Jake cannot have a dramatic murder trial every other year. It just doesn't work that way. So uh, I'm, I'm already thinking about the next one. Excellent. Thank you, John. And much time, as you mentioned, in our world has passed between a time to kill Sycamore Row and now a time for mercy. But in the novel, not much time has passed at all as it takes place in 1990, one year after a time to kill was published. Uh, can you take a moment, John, to talk about the political climate, both in Clanton, Mississippi, and in the United States of 1990, to give our friends who are watching a sense of the time period? You know, it seems wonderfully nostalgic, 1990. Um, we were, um, you know, pre-internet, pre-cell phone, pre-digital, pre, we thought we could communicate fast enough, you know, back then. Uh, and I wanted to get back before uh, the internet. Also, crucially, in 1990, it was not uncommon in death penalty states to put teenagers on trial for capital murder, for horrible crimes. And it was not, uh, I mean, it happened. And uh, the Supreme Court stopped that about 10 years ago. and said, you can't do it anymore. It's, it's, it violates the constitution. And then they came back later and said, you cannot put, you cannot sentence a kid under the age of 18 to prison for life without parole, regardless of what the kid did, because uh, that's, a, that's a death sentence. So the law has changed a lot since 1990. So I went back there because I, 1990 was the last year I practiced law. Uh, it was a year after The Time to Kill came out, which didn't sell. And a year before The Firm came out, it did sell. But in 1990, I was still Jake. I was still a small town lawyer in Mississippi. And I remember, I remember those cases, you know, I, I, not that I had one, but I, I was very much aware of the fact that, you know, kids were treated like adults. And so that law has changed, but I wanted, to, I wanted to take advantage of that period of time, obviously for my plot to unfold uh, correctly in the time for mercy. Thank you, John. And speaking of time, um, we are currently living in a time of upheaval, not only because of COVID-19 and an upcoming political election, but because of cases of police brutality and police murders of African-Americans, police who often go free without much consequence. A Time for Mercy, which deals with a deputy police officer, a deputy of Sheriff Ozzie, who many of us know very well, uh, beating and murdering not only his girlfriend, but her kids, um, beating her kids. What we see in your novel, A Time for Mercy, that we don't often see in real life or at least hear about is the victim striking back, and in this case, killing the offending officer. Uh, John, can you talk about the time we are living in, the public airings of these instances of police brutality, and tell us how, if at all, this climate influenced the writing of this novel and how you anticipate the climate coloring the reading of your novel? Yeah, when I started writing um, the book in January, um, as I do every year, it was before George Floyd, Rayshard Brooks, and, and uh, Triana, the girl in Louisville. Those, those three are the more famous police killings now. Um, that was before, before they happened and before uh, we had Black Lives Matter. We've had that for several years now. What's happened is these killings have been going on for a long time. Uh, 
these shooting of unarmed uh, suspects, especially unarmed black suspects. But now there's a cell, there's a camera in every pocket. And so we're getting the videos and we're getting the proof and the protests are not going to go away. People are fed up with it, you know, and, and, and the protests will continue. I did not see that coming in January when I wrote the first chapter in which where the, the deputy is murdered. Uh, and the book is not about, uh, the story is not about uh, police brutality because, because the, the cop, the, the dead cop in this case was off duty. He was not misbehaving uh, as far as his job was concerned. He was not uh, abusing people because he was a, a deputy. He was, uh, it was after hours. He was a wonderful policeman um, when he was sober on duty, very highly regarded, had a very, very dark side and a you know, really nasty side as, as uh, a lot of people do who seem to be okay when they're sober and then you know, alcohol brings on something else. And so that's what happened to Stuart Cofer, the deputy sheriff. And he uh, was abusive and violent and threatening and uh, the family finally had enough. And so the kid, the kid got his hand on a gun. And you know, I, I think about the, the Black Lives Matter. I think about these horrible videos that we see and we think about, you know, how can, how can they continue? But they continue, they're gonna happen again. And you, you think, when will policemen stop shooting unarmed, uh, unthreatening people. And, uh, you know, they, they, they simply have to be retrained. They have to rethink. Uh, and I think most police departments are doing that because most policemen are not, uh, behaving this way. That's, that's probably a future book. I'm going to wait and see how it plays out. I'm intrigued by, um, the protest because, you know, I have a real interest in, in criminal justice, criminal injustice. And there are a number of issues I have written about over the years that, that need to be addressed in Washington. And before 2016, we were seeing some real movement toward the middle on some, uh, some compromises to, to reform criminal justice. Uh, from, from the left, the Democrats want to reform a lot of laws uh, that need to be reformed for for human rights, civil rights, those reasons, okay? Uh, a lot of moderate Republicans too. From the far right, a lot of Republicans realize that we are paying a dear price for mass incarceration and for having the highest rate of incarceration in the world. I mean, and, and our prison population is aging, so it becomes more and more burdensome every year. So we're paying for three strikes throughout all these horrible laws we've passed. And so, Republicans you know, are tired of paying for it. So they, the two were kind of getting close in the middle. Um, then 2016 happened and there was, there's no interest in it now. Uh, hopefully we can revive some interest uh, next year and move toward changing a lot of laws uh, that would, would take some of the uh, uh, anger uh, out of the streets. If you could just do away with a, a few things and stop, stop locking up everybody. Uh, it would it would go a long way in in settling some of the complaints and some of the protests. So I'm kind of optimistic. Thank you, John. I now want to talk about church. Church plays a huge role in this story, as it did to some degree in A Time to Kill. Uh, but here we see churches, pastors, congregations, characters 
multiple characters introduced to us in the terms of whether or not they attend a church, and if they do, what church they attend. Can you tell us about the importance of churches to this novel, A Time for Mercy, and discuss why you placed such an emphasis on them relative to your characters? Well, church is very much a part of life in the rural South. Um, that's what I experienced. I mean, the church was an extension of our home. Uh, we spent a lot of time there and we were influenced by people, our friends who went there. We were taught by the adults who volunteered there. We were watched and, and raised by the <laughs> kind of the whole church and also the whole church knew your business, which was not always uh, pleasant. It was just an extension of our social life because so much of, um, uh, what we did outside of the house, we did at church, whether it was uh, my church sponsored our Boy Scout troop. So I was there all the time. I love Boy Scouts. Uh, softball teams, uh, the cookouts, revivals, meals, funerals, weddings, you know, it all revolved around the church. And so, um, and, and when there was a time of need, when somebody was um, sick or dying or dead, uh, I mean, the church really kicked in the high gear and, and made sure that people were uh, taken care of. If somebody lost a job, um, you know, no member is going to lose their home or go hungry because the church is going to step in. It was that kind of a safety net. And that's the way I grew up. And um, so, you know, with that type of upbringing, I, I, I believe in churches reaching out and helping people, helping um, those who are in dire need. And in this case, the Gamble family, Josie's 32. She has two kids. Drew is 16, the murder suspect. And Kira, who's 14, they're basically homeless. She's been to prison. She's made a lot of bad decisions, and she carries some remorse. But the kids have been homeless. They've been in orphanages. They've been in foster homes. They've been, you know, it's been a rough, rough life. And she took up with uh, Stuart Cofer, the deputy sheriff, because he owned a house, had a nice house, uh, which was shelter for Josie and her kids. And, and so she feigned a romance to get a, you know, a place to live. And and then it turned out to be a really bad place to live for all of them. And it eventually led to, to his death. But that's, again, and, and, but they were taken in by a church. Uh, once, once they left that house and they had, they had to leave, they had no place to go. And a local country minister uh, took them in, and they actually lived in the church for a couple of months in the story uh, because they had, they had nowhere else to go. And so... Yeah, it's that type of outreach and outpouring of compassion and, and help that I think churches are supposed to do. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. John, there are 
two cases that are central to this book. Uh, one is that of the state of Mississippi versus the 16-year-old Drew Gamble for the murder of Deputy Officer Stuart Kofer. And one is the Smallwood case, which involves an accident at a railroad crossing that killed most of a family. How do you see these two cases, both involving a group of four, one a murder, one a literal train wreck of a case, playing off of one another? I wanted to use a Smallwood case um, selfishly because it was identical to a case I had when I was 30, uh, 1984. Yeah, 1984. I, um, as a rookie lawyer, had been out of law school for two or three years. I suddenly had this case. Uh, two people had been killed at a terrible crossing uh, in a rural area. They hit, they hit the side of the train and uh, killed instantly. And, um, and I, you know, because I knew the family, I had the case and, and it was gonna be, you know, a big case. It was gonna be, you know, maybe the biggest case of my life. And I worked on, I worked on it um, hours and hours and hours and you know, put in all the research and investigative, all this, you know. And I was determined uh, to, to take the case to federal court into a federal courtroom as a 30 year old uh, lawyer and win a big verdict. I mean, I, I was gonna do that, I was determined to do it. I, I did not have a lot of experience in the courtroom, but I had enough to know that I could, I could try the case, present to the jury, ask them for a bunch of money and get a record verdict. That's how ambitious I was back then. But so it had a big impact on me. It didn't happen, we went to trial and we settled after three days and everybody was happy. Um, Jake sees this case as the same thing. It's, it's, it's a case that he's gonna try in his home courtroom before a local jury. And much like the Carly Haley trial, it's a big moment with Jake in the center of the courtroom. You know, he's, he's gonna be the victor and get all the attention. Well, in the civil case, Smallwood case, he's gonna get all the attention, win a big verdict and make a bunch of money. Uh, unlike Carly Haley, where he got paid nine hundred dollars, and unlike Drew Gamble, where he's going to get paid, I think two thousand dollars. You know, this is his big moment, and I'm not going to spoil the story. But what happens? Uh, what happened? Jake is preparing this civil case for trial. It's teed up, ready to go. The day of the trial, there's a surprise uh, witness, and it's devastating for the time being. And there were some rules that were violated uh, by Jake and the case is bumped, uh, continued indefinitely. And it's devastating for Jake because he, he's borrowed money to get this case to trial. He's heavily in debt. He's uh, heavily in debt when the story starts. He's in deeper in debt when the story's over. Um, but there's a hope that maybe this case will not go away. It'll, it'll amount to something later on. Anyway, I thought it was a nice subplot to uh, keep the reader guessing and also allow me to relive some old history. Thank you, John. Um, let's now talk about race. Uh, in your first book, A Time to Kill, race was a central factor of the story. A black man in Mississippi killed two white men who raped his daughter, uh, two white men who were driving a pickup truck with a Confederate flag on it. Uh, the Confederate flag, of course, is still a part of the Mississippi state flag, though that may be replaced soon, um, but certainly was not going to be replaced as far as folks were concerned in 1984. Um, the 
N-word, John, is used in A Time to Kill more times than I can properly count. And I did go back and read both A Time to Kill and Sycamore Row before this interview. Um, there is a passage in your new book, A Time for Mercy, on page 70, where you acknowledge that the use of this word was once prevalent, but was now frowned upon. Um, now, in this passage, being in 1990, uh, can you talk about the shift towards this word in racially insensitive language that you were alluding to here, both for the citizens of Clanton, Mississippi, and for you, John Grisham, as you were writing about them. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a tough one to navigate. When I wrote the book in the mid-1980s, uh, that word was used um, quite a bit, a lot, a lot more than now. It was not uncommon to hear um, lawyers, educated people, lawyers, judges, um, and, and, and people with no education, too. Uh, it, was just, it was used a whole lot more in 1985. I didn't have any problem using it uh, in A Time to Kill because every time it's used, it is a, the natural way of speaking. It's used by both blacks and whites in A Time to Kill. It's used by blacks and whites in Sycamore Row. Uh, many, many fewer cases of it. Uh, over the years, the word has just become so... Uh, you know, so toxic, so insensitive. It's just the one word, you know, we just don't, you can't tolerate in our society. You know, it, it, when, you, when you hear someone say it, it's just so intentionally inflammatory. Uh, people want to start trouble when they use that word. Um, it's a double standard because rappers use it all the time. And it's okay if they use it. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's just best to stay away from it. And... It's used once or twice in time for mercy. Um, the first time it's used, uh, Ozzy uses it, the black sheriff. And that's not uncommon. It's not uncommon today uh, to hear uh, black folks use it kind of in a joking way. Um, then it's used later by a young law clerk, Portia, who someone calls her the N-word, an anonymous phone call. And she's not really rattled by it because she's heard it before. But Jake apologizes because she was working for him when she heard it. Uh, so it's, it's not something I want to use again. Uh, I have no plans to do that. And I'm, I'm, for someone who grew up in that culture, in that environment, and I heard that word 10 times a day from the day I was born until I, you know, left for college, um, to, to think back now on how many times I heard that word and used that word, uh, I really uh, know how, how insensitive that is and how uh, it's best to, to leave, it, leave it alone and say something else. Thank you, John. Um, I mentioned earlier when we were talking about police brutality, the strange times that we are all living in right now. And of course, a huge part of the discourse in our society right now uh, is the election we have coming up in eight days. Many of the characters in your book, John, are very concerned with elections. Uh, the judges, the DA, the sheriff, the employees of all the aforementioned. Can you talk to us, John, about how the specter of an election is always hanging over the head of many of your characters and how this affects their actions and overall outlooks on life? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, we, we vote every year in Mississippi on something. Uh, our, our governor's races, our statewide races and legislative races and county races 
are all in off years. Uh, this is a this is 2020, a presidential year. I think they run again for governor like next year or the following years. It's, it doesn't make any sense. We vote. No, it's an off year. So then in two years, we have the midterm elections federally. So the federal and state go back and forth. And then you have municipalities. And that's a different year. So we vote almost every year in Mississippi. You know, you get tired, you get tired of voting. And um, for those of us who, you know, those of us who voted. But politics is a big, 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 uh, big deal in, in small town life, um, especially when you do something that I don't like, when you have, excuse me, judicial elections. I don't think judges should be elected. I don't think prosecutors should, should be elected uh, because, you, you know, we have to keep politics out of the judicial system. And that's one great thing about the federal system. For the most part, the judges are beyond politics for the most part. But um, so many times you'll see it in, in, in small town America where you know, there's a horrible crime and the prosecutor is grandstanding for the voters uh, and the judge is afraid to make a ruling that might go against the uh, prosecution. And so the judge, it's politics. The judge is worried about re-election. I know judges who've lost races because of uh, decisions that their opponents used against them. That's not unusual. And so the whole, you know, I'm, Jake makes that point. Jake, Jake is tired of, you know, politics in elections. And so uh, I make the point too, it's time to move on. But, you know, people, you know, Ozzy's a politician. Ozzy's uh, the only black sheriff in Mississippi. We meet him in a time to kill. There are two others, I think, now in a time for mercy. But he he's in a county that's seventy four percent white. And how does he do that? Well, he, he does it because he's a shrewd politician, and he was a local football hero. And he you know he's very well known, very well liked, and people feel good voting for Ozzy. Uh, but he knows his politics too. That's very much a part of the story. It's just po po politics is such a rich vein in, in the culture of the Deep South. Thank you, John. Um, Jake Brigance seems to want to be everybody's friend, uh, and possibly one of his best character traits is that he can battle his friends in court and remain their friends once they get on the other side of said court battle. Uh, however, his mentor, Lucian Wilbanks, thinks that he, Jake, cares too much about what other people think. Uh, how important do you think it is for a trial lawyer to be on friendly terms with everyone in a small town, even after he has prosecuted them or defended a client against them? Oh, I don't know if it's truthfully the great trial lawyers are in Lucian's camp. They don't care how they are perceived by other lawyers or by local people. Um, they, they have a job to do. And that's where Lucian comes. He doesn't care what people think about it. Uh, and I think your really good trial lawyers will sue anybody if the case is right um, because they believe in their client and they're not afraid to sue. I mean, it was not unusual when I was a, a lawyer to be afraid to sue certain people or certain banks or certain companies or certain, you know, uh, firms or certain farmers, you, you didn't, you know, some folks you didn't really want to sue because you didn't want to be on their bad side locally. 
not that they would ever hire you, but you just never, you just never knew. And Jake struggles with that. Jake's like, Jake's like me. Jake, Jake wanted, you know, to be liked. He wanted to be popular and still does. Uh, he has a hard time uh, suing a local doctor. What if the local doctor is a cute, a beloved doctor in, in downtown Clanton uh, commits malpractice and, you know, somebody's brain damaged. Um, Jake would, you know, would Jake take that case? I uh, don't know. They don't know. But, but a, a true trial lawyer would not hesitate to take that case. And so that's, that's the internal struggle Jake is always fighting with. He's always getting this, this beautiful advice from Lucian, you know, who, who, does, who doesn't care. He's always been a radical. And he, he gets frustrated with Jake because Jake, you know, cares too much. Mm-hmm. Thank you, John. Um, I'm going to continue to tie current events in with the events in a time for mercy, because I did find this to be a very timely book. And it is the exact book that I wanted to read right now in October of 2020. Uh, I think I said the same thing, John, when I interviewed you for Camino Wins, which, by the way, was also released during this pandemic. And I never imagined at the time that we would be sitting here talking about your next book uh, with conditions that have not improved. Um But one big thing that is happening in the news right now, today even, is the ongoing confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett for the Supreme Court. And anytime someone is up for a seat on the Supreme Court, Roe versus Wade is part of the conversation. You do deal with topics of abortion and adoption, abortion versus adoption, even in this novel, A Time for Mercy. And we learn a bit about Jake Brigance when we find out which side of the argument he falls on. Can you talk, John, about the inclusion of this thread in your novel and let us know whether it is something you intended through Jake Brigance to take a stand on whether it was purely uh, an effective way to tell us the readers something about Jake's character. Jake is a lot like me when it comes to abortion. Um, He doesn't like it uh, from a moral point of view. Jake's a Christian. He doesn't like it from a Christian point of view. Um, And that's the way I was when I was a young lawyer. But but I also had a client one time, a uh, family, where the, in which the 15-year-old daughter got pregnant. And these are people in my church, and they were devastated. They didn't know what to do. Uh, they came to me for advice. I, I didn't have much advice you know, a situation like that. Um, they could get the abortion legally uh, in, you know, in Memphis, and this was... This was about 1985, about the same period of time we're talking about. I was about 30 years old. Uh, and we had some discussions, and it, it was all – I never told my wife about that, about this case because I didn't, I didn't tell my wife about the case with our clients. You're not supposed to. Um, and I was getting paid almost nothing. These people couldn't afford to pay, but they needed to talk to someone. They were talking to the minister. They were talking to uh, – family members, well, some family. They talked to the father, who I think was 16 years old. The girl was 15. And um, I mean, you can imagine what those conversations are like. Do you have the abortion and, and nobody will ever know? And the girl could continue with high school and no one would ever know, maybe. Um, or do you have the baby and, and, let, and let everybody know what's happened and then maybe uh, – keep the child. There's even a conversation about the two kids getting married at the age of 16 and 15. I mean, but, but I was in the room for, for some of those really delicate decisions. And I remember thinking, these are decisions to be made by these people. 
by the mother, by her parents. Maybe the father has a role here, uh, but, but I have no business being, I, I can talk to you about adoption and what that will entail. But these, these decisions are so private that nobody else should be included. No, nobody. And, and especially, you know, judges, politicians, people like that should not be included. These are, these are too private for anybody except for the mother and her parents. And, and I, that, that's, that made an impression on me for the rest of my life. Th these are decisions that are beyond politics and judges and courts and all that. So that's, that's where Jake and I stand on abortion. You know, we don't, we don't like it, but it's somebody else's, somebody else's body. Thank you, John. One more question before I turn this interview over to our audience. Uh, will Jake Brigance ever take a case that actually pays? Yes. Uh, when we meet Jake again, probably about five years from now, um, I'm tired of Jake being broke. I'm tired of Jake being in debt. Uh, Jake's tired of being in debt. And he's too good of a lawyer not to make a bunch of, make some money, not a bunch of money. He's never going to make a bunch of money in Clanton, Mississippi. Uh, but uh, some relief is on the way. I don't know what's going to be, but he's, he's going to get a nice fee somewhere. Thank you so much, Sean. All right, let me pick a question from our audience here. Um, Hayden McNeil from Raleigh says, Mr. Grishin, I'm an attorney from Raleigh, North Carolina, and your books have inspired my career. My question is whether you would consider bringing back any of your other characters in subsequent novels, and if so, who, Jim McDeer or Joel Blackman, perhaps? Uh, I don't see Mitch coming back from the firm. Um, we tried that with a TV show a few years ago that pretty well flopped. Um, I, I, I don't see Mitch... There are a couple that come to mind that maybe I published a book called The Whistler in 2016. Uh, the, the, the main character is Lacey Stoltz, and she um, she's a lawyer. Her job is investigating uh, complaints against judges in Florida, and so she sees some pretty juicy uh, bad behavior by judges. I can see her coming back with another judge case. You know, somebody somebody she's going after who's really corrupt. Um, a book called Gray Mountain involved a young lawyer, a female lawyer who bailed out of Wall Street in 2008 with the financial crisis and took a force into a leave of absence. And she ended up in Appalachia working for legal aid and really found uh, her calling. When the story is over, she's still there. She's debating about going back to Wall Street, which she doesn't want to do, or staying in Appalachia, which she's not sure she wants to do. Uh, so that's those two come to mind. Uh, Bruce Cable in uh, Camino Island, Camino Winds. Not there's no lawyers in those stories, uh, but I really like the setting, the locale, the uh, and the characters around the bookstore. It's all about a bookstore and, and stolen books and things like that. And so another another good mystery from there would be uh, probably going to happen pretty soon. So yeah, there, there are a few. Most most of the books are just, you know standalone novels that. I really couldn't go back to, uh, and, I, and I have too many ideas uh, for other, you know, other issues I want to pursue to keep going back to the same characters. All right, thank you, John. Um, Maggie Neptune asks, do you ever miss practicing the law? I cannot recall if you left because you were truly a writer or if you had tired of the law. I left because um, 
I was tired of the law. What happened? What happened? I only practiced law for ten years, but about halfway through that career, I got the urge to write. I got the dream of writing full time, which is a very powerful dream. Uh, and it, 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 at first, it was just a far fetched, uh, you know, dream I could never attain. Once I finished uh, Time to Kill, once I got it published, and started thinking about the next book. Uh, I was more determined to write than to practice law. Uh, I, I found the practice of law to be fairly frustrating because it was, I was a small town guy with too much competition, not enough clients and uh, a lot of hard work. I mean, it was a, you know, a lot of hours each week and without a lot of compensation for that. Thank you, John. Um, Lily Ball wants to know if you have a favorite book that you have written. I have to love all of them to be able to finish them. I love the idea, I love the character, I love to get through the process of finishing one. Um, but you know, as years go by with the benefit of some maturity and hindsight, I can look at the books on a rack and, and say, uh, you know, that was a good effort. Maybe that was not quite so good. Um, the Time to Kill is always gonna be special because it was the first, it was autobiographical, it didn't have a prayer making it anywhere and uh the fact that it uh has become the most popular one of all of them is certainly the firm the firm changed it in my life overnight uh when the firm came out it was instantly popular and uh that's when i stopped being a lawyer I, suddenly i could walk out of the office and, and write full time so uh, those those two come to mind thank you john uh rebecca lyman asks uh, you are an incredible plotter can you share your process in fleshing out your plots? Yeah, there's a lot of uh, uh, preparation and, and um, we call it, the great lawyers are known for their meticulous pretrial preparation. The great courtroom lawyers. And I learned that from a couple of good ones uh, many years ago. It's, it's just this, the abundance of work, and that's what Jake is into in, in, in the story. And just the uh, just the work, the, the, the meticulous pretrial preparation, and that's kind of the way I grew up as a lawyer. And it still holds true. It's it's the it's the preparation of the story. Uh, you you have to have the idea of the story. You have to have a compelling opening, something a hook in the first chapter. You've got to have enough tension to maintain, you know, 300 pages leading up to an ending that uh, is unpredictable. I don't really want the reader to know halfway through how it ends. Uh, the reading, the ending must be uh, satisfactory. It can't be too unpredictable, but it, you know, it can, it can be quirky. Uh, once I've got that kind of worked out mentally, I'll start, I'll start, you know, doing the outline. And the outline can go on for a long time. Chapter one, write a paragraph. What happens? Chapter two, write a paragraph. And go on and on and on. And that forces you to see the entire story. And, and, and when you can see the entire story, you can't outline everything because the surprises are, are wonderful. They're too much fun to, to pass up. And, and they happen with every book. But once you, once you see the whole story and you know what the ending is going to be, First of all, you, you, you never get lost, which is a huge problem writers have, getting lost in their own work. And number two, you, you always know what's next. You know what's coming next, and it, it helps you pace and plot the book. 
So it's, it's just the, the hours you put in before you write the first word. Thank you, John. And uh, last question, Carol Pomper asks, do you think A Time for Mercy will be made into a film? And if so, would you want Matthew McConaughey to play Jake again? I have not had a feature film made in 15 years. Uh, Hollywood has changed dramatically and the studios make very, very few smart adult dramas. I mean, we, we all love movies and we know how few of those come out of Hollywood. Um, the, the, the system today, they, 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 they'd rather spend a billion dollars making uh, a cartoon, Spider-Man, you know, 10, some action hero thing, uh, than, uh, than to spend 50 million to make a good drama. Uh, so the, the system is all, it's different than it was 25 years ago. And I can't change it, I don't, I don't worry about it anymore. I would love for all my books to be filmed because we all enjoy a good movie. And uh, Jason, as you and I know, a good movie can sell a lot of books. <laughs> so if you know, we, we want, want the movies to come. Uh, with A Time for Mercy, it's probably pretty simple. If Matthew uh, wants to do the movie, uh, it will probably get made. Um, if he doesn't want to, for whatever reason, uh, it will probably have a harder time in a longer time before it gets made. All right. Well, thank you, John. It sounds like we all have uh, some letters to write to Matthew so we can see this film. Um, John, I want to thank you again so much for joining us. And I want to remind our audience that we have signed copies of A Time for Mercy available here at quailridgebooks.com. We are shipping for free. Uh, we will ship this and any of John's other books, A Time to Kill, Sycamore Row, Camino Wins, so many classic books, so many bestsellers. John, we can't thank you enough for joining us. Thank you, Jason. Always fun. Look forward to the next time. All right. See you Take later. Care. See you. Bye, everybody. Once again, I would like to thank John Grisham for joining me. Signed copies of A Time for Mercy can be ordered at www.quailridgebooks.com with free shipping while supplies last. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro.fm Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one month of free audiobooks and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Bookin'.